Hello and greetings, and welcome to another edition of the New and Living Way, a Hebrews podcast. I'm Ethan, very glad that you've joined us, and thank you for the gift of spending time as we continue to explore what God has made known through the Hebrews author. We continue in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. At this point in the Hebrews letter, we do well to look at what he has said before in a particular specific light in order to make sense of what he is doing here in chapter 8 and bringing in this quotation primarily from Jeremiah chapter 31. We have to imagine the posture of a person who was Jewish in the second temple period, uh, whether Hebrews author is writing at the very end of that period or after the temple was destroyed. Uh, to a Jewish person, uh, they are zealous for the law of Moses and for the covenant that God had made with Israel on Mount Sinai. And this was embodied in the Second Temple period, uh, based upon what came in the First Temple period and from the days of the tabernacle, with the Levitical priests doing the ministrations and the high priest of the line of Aaron, who was making the appropriate offerings and sacrifices. And in Torah, in the uh, law that was given, it was said that the priesthood remained for Aaron and his descendants forever, Nolam. Uh, and so we can imagine and understand why a person who's coming out of that uh, worldview, that, that idea, uh, or even those who were confronted, a Gentile who would read the law and see the history of Israel, would put great privilege and great power in the law itself. What the Hebrews author is doing to encourage his audience, which certainly includes Jewish Christians, it may also include Gentile Christians as well, is he's trying to make an argument for what is greater with Jesus that's actually rooted in what had been made known before. And trying to point out that even within the scriptures of the Hebrews, you have the realization, the indication that there was something greater coming. And so chapter 7 had been this great explication about Melchizedek. And yes, you saw the beginning of chapter 7, there was a lot of conversation about who Melchizedek is. Uh, but if we were just left with that obscure Genesis 14 account, it would be interesting, it would be kind of weird, we could shrug our shoulders and move on. And the Hebrews author is not anchoring his argument really in 
Genesis 14, he is instead anchoring what he's doing by looking at that quotation that Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The quotation from Psalm 110 and verse 4. And Psalm 110, uh, very much a messianic prophecy. Uh, Yahweh says to my Lord, uh, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, which becomes at chapter 8 and verse 1 that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, i.e. that he is the king, he is the Lord, he is the one in power, but that he also serves as this high priest, this priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that shows that there's this kind of tension now, because, okay, what about the Levitical and, and, and Aaron priests? Well, that's why Jesus can't be a priest on earth in verse uh, 4, because we already have those priests, the Levites and the, the descendants of Aaron. But that's why in chapter 7 he points out that Melchizedek predates all of those guys. And in fact, through uh, Abraham, they are giving tithes to Melchizedek in the loins of their father. Um, and that the perfection was not possible through the Levitical law just by the very nature of the Levitical priesthood. That the priests themselves sinned and needed to offer sacrifices for themselves and they died. And it was all based upon that genealogy. Whereas the priesthood of Melchizedek uh, looks to be this more idealized one because it's not based on genealogy. And Melchizedek's just kind of hanging there. Uh, he, he was priest. He continues to be priest. There's no end to it, which is kind of signifying what would happen with Jesus, who does not receive this priesthood while on earth. He can't be a priest of Melchizedek on earth. As I said, there's already a priesthood on earth. He dies but he is raised in power. And because he died to no longer die, and he lives continually, now he has been given this role as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And because of this, we were told that God had made the swearing of this oath, which an oath was not made about the priest of Levi and Aaron, but an oath was made about this priest in the order of Melchizedek, that Jesus was made the guarantor of a better covenant in verse 22. He is a security. He is the assurance there's going to be this greater covenant. And so we have this very natural flow where in chapter 8, in the verse 6 verses, uh, the conclusion of this matter that Jesus had not come to purify or cleanse the sketch, the earthly model of the heavenly reality that Moses was shown but has actually gone into the heavenly reality. This is a demonstration that Jesus has a much more excellent religious ministry, a, a priestly service, than existed in the Old Covenant that the Levites and the Aaronites performed in, and that he has now able to be a mediator of a better covenant. And that leads us to this next thought that if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need or occasion to look for a second. And so it's that the same lineage, that it's not that the priests of Aaron or Levi were bad. It's not that the law was bad. It was not that the covenant was bad. It was that the covenant was never meant to be forever. The priesthood was not meant to be all-encompassing and the ideal and that God had, in his provision and plan, had established that there would be this greater thing, which is now manifest in Jesus. And so he's made that demonstration that 
because there's been a change to the priesthood, there's a change to the law uh, in chapter 7, that we've seen why there is a superior priesthood in Jesus and the limitations of the Aaron and Levitical priesthood. Now, he's going to show that that's also true of the covenant itself. And to that end, he goes back to what Jeremiah has to say in Jeremiah chapter 31, where Jeremiah is anticipating this new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, there's some issues going on here because the text of the Septuagint is different from the text of the, the Masoretic text uh, that we read in most the translation of in most English Bibles. And beyond that, the Hebrews author is also kind of playing with some things here. Uh, and he's trying to, to, to draw this connection. As all the time with the Hebrews author, when we quote something, we've got to go back to the text and its context in order to understand what the Hebrews author is doing with it. Jeremiah 31 is extraordinary in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, if you're familiar with the book of Jeremiah, you understand it's not a good time. Jeremiah is a prophet to Judah uh, in the waning days of Josiah and through the kings after him uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem and right afterward. And most of the book is about distress and woe. It's not a pleasant message Jeremiah is giving and the uh, he's treated very badly. And so there's a lot of despair and a lot of pain in the book. But you've got these few chapters here in 30, 31, and 32 where we have messages of hope about what would come in the future. And the majority of chapter 31, actually, is this promise that is being given by God that he was going to gather back again the ten tribes of Israel who had been um, exiled by the Assyrians. We need to set aside the challenges in understanding how that was fulfilled in as much as we do not really see a lot of evidence that you have this great exodus back to Israel of these uh, people of the ten tribes. Uh, certainly nothing of the sort that you see with uh, those in Judah who come back uh, in the days of Cyrus and afterward. But we need to understand why the promise is given. That as the Judahites are looking in the face of exile, uh, they should not despair, as if God has cast them off and will not receive them again to himself. That they will become as Israel is at that moment, uh, assimilated into the populations of Assyria. And that's why that promise is there. God does not abandon or forsake his covenant people, even when they have gone far from him. He is willing to call them back. And so that is why there is that hope of restoration. And so that's why the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and house of Judah. And it's important for us when we consider what the Hebrews author is doing here. Uh, and again, very important thing to keep in mind that he has his purposes uh, and they're not what we want to take out of the text. Uh, as we're going to see also in chapter 9, the Hebrews author here is very much making an argument about those who had received that covenant, i.e. the Israelites. And so Israelites are in mind. And when we say Israelites, it's a generic term, but he uses house of Israel, house of Judah here to very much mean the ten tribes and the two tribes. Uh, all Israel, even those who had already been exiled. You're all going to be brought into this new covenant. It's not an indictment of the Gentiles. It's not that the Hebrews author would deny the Gentiles are brought into it. It's just that for his purposes and what he's trying to establish about the old and new, the Gentiles are, for the moment, functionally irrelevant. The Hebrews author would totally agree that there are plenty of prophecies of how the Gentiles will be ingathered into the people of God and how this is done in Christ, uh, but that's not his purpose, and so we shouldn't get distracted with that. And to really focus on how this is being established with the house of Israel and Judah. And of course, what's interesting is what kind of covenant is this going to be? 
Uh, we have plenty of evidence of how this covenant would be imagined. We can see how the Essenes of Qumran looked at what Jeremiah's new covenant would look like, and it should not surprise that it looks like kind of a, just a tweaked, a little bit better version of the covenant already made. But the Hebrews author is seeing in Jeremiah is that Jeremiah is expecting a fundamentally different type of covenant. That it's not like the covenant made with their fathers when he took them out of the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, and this is when we have one of the uh, uh, major changes here, uh, where that in the from the Hebrew text uh, in Jeremiah, that uh, the day that I led them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. And from the Greek that Hebrews author is using, not like the kind of made by their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue my covenant, so I showed no concern for them. Um, which shows kind of a dismissal aspect of it. Uh, and you don't have the covenant relation that you have there in Jeremiah about being the husband, that, that part's not there. It's instead about the fact that there's no concern for them that God has cut them off. But that he's now going to bring them back in. But it's what the Hebrews author is trying to show here by you know in that quotation that meaning is that the new covenant is on a fundamentally different level, a different order than the old. It's not just kind of patching up here or there. It's a completely new thing, founded in the fulfillment of what was promised in the old, but far better. And so. This is the covenant that he says is going to be made. I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And that's the first part of it. The second part, they will not teach each one his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. And then the third part, I'll be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. And each one of these dimensions is worth talking about. So that first dimension... Um, putting the law in the mind and writing them on their hearts. Um, it would be tempting to try to say this is completely discontinuous, that we have something completely new here. But the whole idea of covenant with God is that I will be for them for God, they will be for me for people. That is from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and now in Christ. That's just standard covenant language about that relationship. Uh, covenant here, very much this agreement between parties. Uh, the Hebrew is berit, uh, that it is uh, looked at normally in terms of the ancient Eastern suzerain vassal treaty, where you have uh, a stronger ruler who uh, makes this agreement with a lesser ruler, and the stronger ruler is going to provide his protection uh, and uh, oversight. Uh, and the lesser ruler is going to provide likely tribute or a commitment to provide soldiers if the uh, suzerain, the, the primary leader, needs them. Uh, so it's b between a superior and inferior, but it relates to them in this contractual type of agreement. And we see very strong parallels between how the uh, law the set up in, in Exodus, Leviticus, De De Numbers, and Deuteronomy with these ancient types of treaties. And that God works and interacts with people in terms of covenant. So it's very important. Uh, in terms of putting laws into their minds and writing them on their hearts, the distinction here is that in Israel, in Deuteronomy, they were to do that. Uh, and here God said he is going to do that. Uh, and he kind of goes into that now with uh, no one needs to teach uh, his neighbor here is a very, you know, kind of a, a dis 
a Hebraizing, so to speak, translation by the English Standard Version. Uh, the Greek has a different, a countryman, my, my fellow countryman. Uh, kind of a different word than used in Jeremiah, which really does use neighbor. And a man, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Uh, on the one hand, uh, the, the reason for that kind of statement we can see is, and this is also the law to the mind and, and writing on the hearts, is that the covenant is not going to be something you enter into based upon birth. Uh, it is something that you commit to on faith. Uh, to be an Israelite, you were born to a Jewish mother. To be a Christian, you have to uh, confess that Jesus is Lord, to put your trust in him, to repent of your sins, to be immersed in water in his name, and to serve him faithfully. So therefore, as a confessional family, uh, to be a Christian requires having come to some understanding of God. And so we can look at it, you don't have to say know who God is, because the very fact that you're among the covenant people of God means that you know who God is. Um, which is a different way of looking at it. And, and so that's where a lot of people want to try to figure out how God through his spirit provides his presence. And that's not a denial that that's true. Uh, but we're not having Jeremiah expect some kind of special feeling, emotion, uh, or conviction that would be coming differently than from hearing what God had made known and accepting it, which is what you have in Torah and you also have in the New Covenant, that Jeremiah is using this to frame it a different way. But even beyond that, there's also the fact that he's talking about this in terms of uh, relationship. We have to remember, as difficult as it is, that on the law, you always had the mediating division, that God was somebody you did not approach that you had the priests standing between you and God. And even the priests who were before God, it wasn't exactly fun times. That, in fact, uh, it was a terror, uh, because they were afraid that if something went wrong, they were going to die. And, and so it was not something that was related deeply. And the big difference in the New Covenant is because Jesus has entered the more perfect way, we now have the ability to relate to God without having to have that terror. We can actually come, as the Hebrews author will say in the next chapter, with boldness. And that allows for a deeper relationship so that we don't have to say to know God because we get to come to know God. We don't have to have that mediation uh, beyond what we have from Christ. And that's true for everybody, the least to the greatest. I think that that expansion there is getting at. Does Jeremiah understand this in its fullness? Who knows? But the Hebrews author, by quoting this and alluding to it in a Christian context, is leading us to that conclusion. And we have to realize everything he's saying here in quoting this is going to help frame what we have in chapter 9, uh, because it's going to be again quoted in chapter 10, verses 15 through 17. Um, therefore, kind of providing a, a sandwich to this whole section where the Hebrews author is going to go at length about how Jesus has purified the, the greater reality. And that gets us to that last idea, to be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Uh, in the Hebrew, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. That God is going to provide this cleansing. Um, that there was always remembrance of sin and having to constantly offer the sacrifices, but Jesus would take care of this once for all, and there would be full cleansing, there would be full remission, and that that burden would be lifted in a way that it was not lifted under the old covenant, and it would be perfected. And, and Jesus himself seems to anticipate and allude to this 
in his uh, establishment of the supper in Matthew 26, he says, "This is the blood which is poured out for many. The new co- the new, blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the remission of sins." You know, where would Jesus get the idea that blood poured out would be a new covenant and would be for remission of sins? Uh, those concepts are only really there in Jeremiah, and so Jesus himself provides this more theological. A Christological view of what's going on here uh, as it relates to atonement and that this is where the, the Hebrews author can really say this is what makes this a new covenant that it's Jesus offering of himself and it's not going to be based on that same priesthood and that is why it is not the same covenant it is a better pro- covenant under better promises with what God always intended from the beginning in terms of how uh, People relate to him and relate to one another and live in service to him. And that's why you have a lot of points of continuity between what was existing in the old and what's in the new, but it's radically transformed in the most important ways. And that's where it's a, and that's what you get to in verse 13, that by calling it new, the word covenant is added in, but it's what he refers to. He makes the first one obsolete. The first becomes old because there is a new. And because there is an old, it is growing old, ready to vanish away. It is, it is aging significantly because the new is declared. So once Jeremiah declares it, it shows that it's not intended to be forever, which is his primary point. And then second, and just as important that there is going to when the new thing actually comes that we are to embrace that new and to realize that is going to mean to some degree a letting go of the old um, and that's always the big tension when it comes to the letter to the Hebrews when it comes to uh, how much of supersession is in mind that's become a bad word uh, because of the heritage that was manifest in the Holocaust especially uh, by the idea that the Jewish people have been replaced and therefore were uh, dispensable. Uh, we have to realize that God desires for physical Israel to be saved in Christ, uh, but just because it has been abused doesn't mean that the core concept is not there, that there is the supersession here, that what was old is old because there's now the new, and that the Hebrews author's very point is that we embrace the new, appreciate what the old was, but that we need to embrace the new and find our confidence and trust and hope in the new. And all of this is leading to that that goal of the Hebrews author, that what God has done in Christ is so powerful and amazing and superior to what came before, that why would you go back to what came before? Why would you fall away from this? As will be very clear as we continue in chapters 9 and 10. And we look forward, and Lord willing, to continue to explore then. Until then, may the Lord bless and keep you.